Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A. We'll go again start with your questions in just a moment, but uh, first I want to go ahead and say welcome to what will probably be our one year anniversary of using the studio and our last occasion probably using the studio. We might do the one for May in here, but Sarah and I are signing for a house tomorrow and today is our first anniversary since we got married last year. So I just want to say congratulations to my wife. husband. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's been a very good year thus far for me, needless to say, it's a great way to be ending it up, but we'll be switching the studio in May, and then just depending on, on how well setup goes, probably that would be where we're doing live stream from, uh, and I would say if you see me in this live stream at this location again, it probably means I'm irritated and behind schedule, so, <laughs> so ready for questions, whatever you are. Well, maybe we should start with the question that said, what's Mrs. Arthur's first name? What is your first name, anyway? Now that's a trick question. Wait, is that it's true? your first anniversary, and you should not forget that. Mrs. Isaac Arthur, isn't it? Is <laughs> Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Isaac Arthur. <laughs> My wife's name is the Honorable Sarah Elaine Fowler Arthur, District 99. So <laughs> that had a little bit of addendum added into it, I think. All right, you're honor. What are we <laughs> Well, remember when we were getting married a year ago, and... Um, People were commenting on how your show name and our names fit perfectly together. Oh, yeah. So they can remember it very easily by looking at the SFIA logo at Sarah Fowler and Isaac Arthur. Uh, that's, of course, why I wanted to marry you. It comes SFIA. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, we had a couple questions here from uh, the show last month that we were unable to get to. We have a question from Albert Jackinson. Hey, Isaac, thanks for hosting today. I've been thinking about education recently and I've been wondering, would being able to download knowledge directly to the brain, maybe being able to learn it automatically, change formal education, and if so, how? It's a great way of long kung fu. Uh, for those who remember the movie The Matrix back in, was it 1999 that it came out? That's old, wow. Um, one of the big things there was that you could download knowledge, skills directly into someone's head. Um, that actually wouldn't work for someone in a biological sense, like they might know it for inside the matrix somehow, but you actually have a lot of muscle memory associated things like that, skills like that. And so I think we can't just assume you could download something directly into a human's brain, uh, though obviously you could probably really improve education if you learn how to do that, right? You just instantly know stuff. But that's the thing to keep in mind for artificial intelligence too. We talk about building up neural networks. I don't know why one assumes that computer intelligence would just instantly know something if you download it in their head any more than we do when you download it from our eyes. 
Um, don't assume that AI can instantaneously learn a subject by tuning into Wikipedia for it. But obviously, if we can find ways to download information more directly into people's heads, skills, things like that, big difference, you know? Mm-hmm. So Thought Criminal says, Isaac, are you familiar with Robert Robin Hansen and the Age of M? Yeah. Yes, E-M, M. A, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. Okay, he says, the basic idea is that if whole brain emulation becomes possible... The emulations or M's will eventually outnumber biological humans. Do you have any comments on that? Probably. One of those questions comes with simulation hypothesis. That big question of whether or not we live in a simulation is if those simulated or emulated minds already outnumber the rest of us or real people or if you're one of them. Um, if it's easier to store, run, and maintain people on a digital system, and if I say to do this for people, meaning that this process is actually possible and would create actual real humans, you know, it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, etc. If people feel that that's just as good, then yes, I think you probably would see more of that. But that's one of those wait until it happens, but they make really good statements about it. Desiric says, um, much of the known reality has been observed to move away from us faster than the light than the speed of light. Doesn't that also imply that much can also be moving toward us faster than the speed of light? And could we ever know if it was before it was too late? No. Yeah, that, that is the one downside about it. Uh, when you're moving away from someone faster than the speed of light, um, you're, you, know, you, you stop you know, you get light from them until they're too far away. They start becoming invisible to you because you just keep going forth and forth away faster than the light can cover it. Faster than the other way around is that the thing hits you before the light gets there. You know, this comes up a lot of times with uh, space battles where anything's faster than light is. How exactly is that they're firing all these weapons or probes or torpedoes out at warp speed from the ship, uh, which itself is moving at warp speed, and these things are assumed to be going at light speed. Uh, a scene from The Force Awakens, which is one of the newer Star Wars movies I'm kind of okay with. I'm not, I'm not too happy with some new Star Wars movies, uh, canon-wise, because I'm a big Legends fan. Uh, they show the, the blowing up of the capital of the Republic. I, I don't even remember its name because it's, it's not Coruscant. Um... And everybody can see it, including the rebels on a different planet, as the as the strike comes in. As they were they in the same solar system that they were able to see this attack? Uh, no, that's an interesting coincidence. Oh, in a galaxy that big, but uh, yeah, with fast light objects moving towards us, or if there are things moving towards us, no, we were not. The effects of them from things like gravity would not have reached us yet. They did take that into consideration in the last Star Wars video that we watched, though, because remember the captain of the ship had to say, "Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm calibrating this so that we don't hit any big." At, things in asteroids on the way through. Oh, yeah, and that's that classic one. Is we just got around to watching the original Star Wars. We've been going through them in order, like the, the first three movies and Clone Wars films, and now we just got up to Star Wars: The New Hope. Um, and uh, there's that classic scene there where, where um, Han Solo talks about being able to do the Kessel Run in, in twelve parsecs, and that, of course is a distance, not a time. So I remember all the various little ways they've kind of can and fix that. So it's like, oh, it's a very tight tour, and he was able to do it that that short of a distance, but. A good movie. It's still better than some of the other Star Wars movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, incidentally, for those of you, we were going through a couple questions from the previous month. We were getting things queued up in the chat. Uh, we'll be moving those now. Plenty of times to get questions in the chat. We usually take a break about halfway through, so we got about an hour to go. Mr. Arthur, the sun is heating up. Am I to believe this will increase the circumference of our sun's habitable zone? If so, what could humanity do to increase Earth's orbit around the sun? Therefore, always staying in the center of the ever-growing Goldilocks zone. 
Thank you, and have a sunny day. You too. Uh, and have a more sunny one in the future. The sun heats up, but it is a slow process. I, I, I don't know if we pin down the exact amount, but I think it's like 1% for every 100 million years. Um, that doesn't really change our circumstellar, I mean, for the habitable zone, that is going to increase it, right? But it's a slow process. As to moving the planet, it wouldn't really take that much. Um, the planet is really heavy and has a lot of angular momentum. Indeed, it's actually fairly parallel to what you need to disassemble the planet um, to death start, if you would, which is a huge amount of energy. Um, and it's actually more energy than the sun releases an entire week, but there you go is kind of the idea of the zone. Let's say we put a reflective plate the size of Texas. You know, we just covered over in a reflective foil and aim some extra sunlight at that, and maybe even put some walls around that so that uh, we won't have that heat stay in the atmosphere. You could put use some big beam from the sun for some solar mirror ray and use that to just push on the planet to push a little bit of away. I know we talked about this in an episode, simply how you move a planet. Um, probably, probably planet ships. It would probably be in the episode planet ships <laughs> uh, or evacuation Earth. I think we talked about that specific case there too. So, but we'll go into a lot more detail about it there. Um, Bobo Master says, "What would happen if an exoplanet had an iron-rich atmosphere?" I would assume it would give the sky a reddish hue, but how would it impact the possibility for life? An iron-rich atmosphere would be a tricky thing to maintain in the long term. I mean, that's, that was one of the problems with theoretically having oxygen on an early Earth is, uh, uh, you know, as a waste product of life that time was, it would be getting sucked up by all the iron, uh, so the oxygen wasn't staying there. An iron-rich atmosphere would probably have a big problem existing very long. You'd almost have to have some kind of geological process that was spitting iron into the air pretty regularly. And the question is, is it like, which type of iron is just regular iron, or is it, you know, iron oxide, which you tend to expect they're breathing in. Um, what was the actual question again? That was pretty much the question. What would happen if an exoplanet had an iron-rich atmosphere? I think we'd have to ask a chemist real quick if that was actually viable. You could have a star that had an iron-rich atmosphere. Um... Uh, photosphere. I don't think a planet could maintain an iron-rich atmosphere for very long, but that would be uh, that would be very much a chemist question, I'm afraid. That that's I would have problems about thinking where you could actually keep it that way. Alan Crawley says, "I didn't see construction of communities, factories, or facilities at L5 in the NSS space roadmap. What infrastructure needs to be in place before humanity is in a position to construct things at L5, L4?" Hmm. Uh, the L4 and L5 points again being usually meaning the, the Lagrange points with the moon uh, and Earth that are on all, all um, uh, kind of at a, a, make a, a isosceles triangle with, uh, with sorry an equilateral triangle with Earth and the moon uh, though you can also have the ones with the sun which is the same thing with the Earth and the sun instead um, biggest thing about those is that you, you're theoretically using them principally as launch points um, but um Power supply, fuel production, one of those two. It depends on what you're actually using as your ship drive. Um, you can very easily start doing big, heavy infrastructure up there if you either have infrastructure on the moon for mining, a very big power satellite grid around Earth, um, or fusion power that's actually reasonably practical, or if you just go ahead and say, hey, we'll go with you know atomic power, classic fission in space. Any one of those four, it'd probably be in the zone, along with any sort of clanking self-applicator get one of those five or two of those five fairly decently you could probably that probably you have to be able to do that infrastructural see episode uh kickstarting space industry for discussion of that topic y'all Steinman says what would an eventual solution to the theory of everything bring to science and humanity hmm. 
I feel like that was a question we had now. Did we have that one last? What would an eventual solution to the theory of everything bring to science and humanity? You know, I was talking with Brian Keating about that, and that, yeah, we did have that question last last stream um, uh, about that kind of concept loosely. He is one of the folks who has been researching dark matter. Um, very good book, by the way, on that topic by him. Um, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize. Um, we should probably make it the book of the month. Um, but uh, a theory of everything, to me, is always kind of chasing after an assumption, which is a bad thing in science. You're assuming an answer. Theory of everything generally means, in, in most contexts these days, unification of all the four physical forces. You, know, you already have the electromagnetic force, the weak and strong nuclear force, and um, gravity. And we got a very good linkage between the electromagnetic, strong, and weak nuclear forces. And they're all fairly similar in power. You know, and one's like 100 times more powerful than the other, but gravity is a billion, billion, billion times weaker than the weakest of those. Um, and has only an attractive force. And generally, we talk about a theory of everything. We're talking about ways to link up the Higgs boson, the Big Bang, the inflationary cosmic period, and gravity to link up to those other three forces. I don't think we should assume that there actually necessary is. Awesome if there is, and there's a good chance there is, but um, I don't like to just kind of work on that assumption. Obviously, if we do get a theory of everything, probably very good power generation, maybe a decent chance at being able to create either stasis fields or gravity or anti-gravity fields, too. So we have a question from Rational. A recent development of a mechanical artificial womb for mice is promising. How would having a viable artificial womb for humans affect humanity in the near and far future? Um, usually the big one for artificial wombs is that, I mean, one, it's one of the alternative where birth control is concerned. You could potentially be transplanting fetuses into machines if somebody was no longer comfortable with that pregnancy. Uh, but the other big one on that is that you can start dealing with problem cases. Um, like pregnancies where the, the pregnancy is taking place inside the tubes uh, as opposed to the proper womb or uh, any sort of case where they'd just rather be able to have access to the baby in the facility to kind of constantly model. But that's the big thing for artificial wombs, I would say, for humans. Um, for animals, I'm not sure there really is all that much of an advantage, but obviously it would have a lot of scientific applications, but I don't know that it's main medical one would probably just be for telling problem situations of pregnancies. Irazvan says, Dear Isaac, when will you do another collaboration with John Michael Godier? <laughs> you guys are the best combo ever. I think I've probably done almost as many collaborations with John as I have with uh, with Joe Scott and Fraser King combined. And I haven't done one with, uh, with Fraser in quite a while, actually. Um... But, uh, and those are the two I've, I've collaborated with most. Most folks I've done one collab with, maybe two. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm always, I always love going on John's show. John is a lot of fun. We will talk for hours and hours. After have to cut the things up afterwards into multiple episodes and even then leave a lot out. But, um, anytime he wants to be on there with advance notice, I would say, uh, he's one of those two I just love checking to along with, uh, Jimmy Church from Fade to Black. They're just fun to talk to. So we had another question that says, I just need to know, Isaac, are you into skiing, snowboarding, or I'll wait in the lodge? Uh, I've not gone skiing that I can remember. I've never done snowboarding. I do bicycling. We just went bicycling yesterday. That was, uh, that was fun. A lot of uphill. On we that, made on it that. almost 19 miles. Yeah, and most of it uphill. Oh. We well, had to come back down the hill afterward. Oh. 
We have some very nice bike trails in our area, and the one we have here in Ashby County, the Greenway Trail, was built on top of a railroad track, a leftover railroad track that went out of surface. And it runs north and south, and it's almost flat the whole way. Like a the good locks, beginner yeah, level. It's a and very nice, solid asphalt. Uh, very little crossings of like traffic. You can just relax and go on it. And then we went to Presque Island up in Erie. It's a little more up down and more crowded, but also pretty flat. Across to us, the west in Geauga County, they've got was the Maple Line. The Maple Highlands yeah. Trail. Up and down. I think it was. It, it looks like a stock market on a very very flat. It also day. is on a railroad track, but they called that hill the little mountain run was that <laughs> yes oh it's just flat on <laughs> so <laughs> that's really after we one. made it uphill for a solid mile we started to wonder yeah. if we were on the right trail well i, I wish we hadn't saw that little piece of it yeah but i'm a beautiful track i just it's very exhausting so <laughs> um let's see i've been trying to talk sarah to scuba diving we do kayaking i don't think we've have we thought about doing skiing those I've skied before. Okay. Maybe at some point. I've never done winter sports to me all. Actually, the lodge, yeah. I go sit in front of the fireplace and drink hot chocolate coffee. Yeah, those are <laughs> good for me. <laughs> Johnny Wings says, please, please do a world tour giving talks about your techno optimism. So many people are depressed about the future these days. Also, come to Ireland. Do you think there's any good bike trails in Ireland? Well, I, 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 there, there are no mountains in Ireland, so there's that nice at least. But, yeah, there's I bet there's hills, hills like Geauga oh, County. <laughs> I've never been to You Ireland. could bike with the sheep. Yeah. And that's Scotland. Yeah, we oh. used to have a lot of sheep. Uh, well, see, I've been to most of the countries in Europe except, ironically, never to Ireland. And in England, only a stop at Heathrow, a, a stop for, uh, Heathrow Airport. But uh, on our base that we had in Geese in Germany, just north of Frankfurt, they'd bring sheep in to help keep the grass down and uh they always let them graze right by the track we go jogging on and uh well yeah I, well you know a lot about sheep obviously and and how much fun <laughs> it is to walk in places where they've been hanging out so i'll <laughs> let them jog that could be um we have a question from tp he says in your predictions video you mentioned the possibility of recording every minute of our future lives what kind of technology would it take to record and rewatch our dreams we do have an episode on BCRs coming up that's that's actually going to discuss a little bit more about how we'd actually interface with neurons. Um, and I would say I would want to check. I am not actually sure if our pseudo-unipolar um, neurons, those uh, pseudo-unipolar neurons are the ones that are mostly used for sensory neurons. I don't know if they're actually involved in um, dreams at all. I'm not a neurologist. Maybe someone in the chat knows the answer to that if, if we do you know, stimulate those at all while we're dreaming. If that was the case, you'd actually have a pretty good chance of just kind of like putting the neuron equivalent of a dash cam and all the various sensory neurons and then just recording what they are firing up. Um, but otherwise, I'm not saying I'm sure. It should be possible. It's, it's, there's input, there's stimuli. The actual process of actually trying to digitize anything that's going on in your brain, though, is very hard. Even we talk about doing digitalization of humans, what we really mean is we're going to emulate neurons digitally and then just... Size, then you have to ask the question of do you want to and whether uh, yeah. or not there's an erase button should you not uh -huh. want to see that anymore. Yeah, like brain bleach. That's, that's, well, that's actually another good application of that kind of software is you know if you got something traumatic or just unpleasant you don't want to remember, you want to just go ahead and delete that. That's potentially an option. So. <laughs> Isaac Bordeaux says, when will humanity mine their first asteroid? In the next 20 years. I, I'm confident in the next 20 years we'll have that pilot. I wouldn't want to see within the next 10. 
I, I think that there's going to be a lot of effort put into doing that uh, very soon. But the practicality of actually making that happen, things often, as with any technological development, you can suddenly have things roll forward really fast and then hit a stopping point where you thought you'd be able to hit it, but then just really sticks as a brick wall, like we had that happen with Fusion, for instance. Um, we had that happen with um, uh, video conferencing. I have a video conference that was starting to be a big thing in the late 90s already. We were trying to do video conferencing, video education. And the only reason it's really finally taken off, I mean, it's been easy for years. It's, Zoom was not a new thing to me, right? But uh, for most people, it really was. And this, ironically, this plague has helped us get that much better at doing that and making people more comfortable with that. And now we're going to see a big wave of improvement in that sort of stuff, distance learning, things like that, from this. But it's still two decades after we started saying, it's the wave of the future any minute now. So... <laughs> Albert Jackinson says, Isaac, 2020 has gone by fast, and in episodes you've talked about the changing perception of how we experience things via brain alteration. How would that change the thought around time itself? One more time on that last piece of the question. I believe it's kind of getting at um, our changing perception and brain alteration changing time itself. Or our thoughts okay. around time itself. Um, that's hard to say. Again, a lot of times when we talk about speeding up time, what we're talking about is frame jacking. When we say that we're going to speed up your the rate at which you think, thus time seems to pass by slower as a result, um, or slowing it down the other way, so you can experience long space voyages slowly. And I do not know if the term definitely originates from Desi Taylor. I haven't asked him um, frame jacking, but uh, that's why that's why I'm most familiar with him is Desi Taylor's uh, We Are Legion novels. Which, if you have not read, is great, and Dennis is a good friend and a great author. So, but um, back when they first started doing trains, uh, coming back to trains again, popular topic for today, there was a big concern because they were going so fast that you know that was too fast for a human to experience. You know, not so much a scientific concern, but concern with the public. And so we get that one painting, I think by Wheeler, maybe, that shows the melting clocks. They're like all twisted and folded over. Um, Time perception, though, should not really be changed by your mind, but then at the same time, there's time, the passing object, you know, under relativity Einstein, and then there's your perception of time. So that can absolutely be affected by modern augmentation. Arkiger, thank you for your donation. We really appreciate it. He says, what is your opinion on the AI safety alignment problem for the near term? I love the channel. Keep up the great work. Um, I mean, I would actually say the biggest threat from AI in the near future is just that they are really good at sorting data. I'm not really worried about Google getting small. You know, as I think we all talked about that not that long ago, um, was it like lobsters have six neurons that control almost everything they do? Humans have 100 billion. We all, we have AI that are smaller than that now, but at the same time all AI are still really dumb. We have AI, but they are dumb. Google is not alive. You know, Google is not thinking, but at the same time their ability to analyze data for stuff that we just aren't aligned to be able to look at, to be able to just find out things about you you'd find very uncomfortable for blackmail material, for social coercion, things like that is the biggest threat for for employing and deploying AI in the near future, is just how well can that be used to sort data to find things out that would be a violation of privacy in most people's eyes. So speaking of AI, we have a question. Do you think movies like The Matrix, Terminator, or other movies which antagonize AI will seem offensive when there are sentient AI in the future. Now, but uh, I just got around to watching the newest Terminator movie. Um, 
which I didn't even know was out because I don't really watch previews that often. I thought the newest one was Genesis, was the Dog Fate one. I was really disappointed in that film. It was I really think the most recent good uh, sequel to Tornado films has probably been Salvation. I kind of enjoyed the premise there. Um, I like the Sarah Connor, Connor Chronicles though better, but uh, antagonist AI. I don't think they are going to care if we are doing things that are confused with their concern because you, I think to keep in mind with AI is. They're not a species. It's not that type of a thing. With AI, they're all different. You know, it's it's like saying, are things about pigs going to be insulting to sentient birds in the future? I don't think Google is going to be offended by us knocking Apple in the future. It'd be kind of like us knocking eagles when we're talking to pigeons. It's going to be a very broad area. As to whether or not they will get offended, I can only really imagine one of them being upset about things we're talking about nowadays or in science fiction as either an excuse to want us to humanize it, which is probably a valid thing. Look at all these problems you've had in the past with it. Or basically as an excuse for Cassius Belly. I wiped them out because they used to say offensive things about me. Or my predecessors. They're probably not its real reason for doing them. You know? So, you'll guess a good mind as to how antagonized they feel about that, though. Dragon King says, will you do a video on the new warp drive? Um... Actually, yes. Yes, I will do that video. We are doing a new FTL series. I almost forgot about that. That is not the first one we're doing. The first one is, was it? Um, I can't remember what the episode's called. It's coming. We have a new series coming up in June called Galactic Domination. And I decided it was a great time, since that's so often intrinsically with FTL, to discuss the you know doing some more FTL episodes. Because I was never really happy with the original series. It was very early on in production, and they're not the best quality episodes. And... There was always a desire to do more on that topic. So, yes, we will be looking at the new Warp Drive sometime this year. Annabelle Casas says, What do you think is the far future of gaming, like galactic gaming? Hmm. Gaming? Gaming. Galactic gaming. Wouldn't there be a time lag between... I mean, it, oh, there'd be a huge lag time if you're trying to do anything, with, unless you have fast line travel. Uh, it'd be hard to do one even inside the solar system like they do with a lot of the multiplayer role-playing games. Um, I do very little online gaming in general because I remember when EverQuest first came out, this for Warcraft hit, the Warcraft Online, the Warcraft 1 and 2 I did play. Uh, and I just remember I had quite a few geeky friends who got obsessed with that game, so... Uh, massive online role-playing games are things I tend to avoid, like The Plague. I prefer pen and paper RPGs or sandbox-style games when I play video games all these days, which is sadly a lot less often than I would probably like to. Um, and uh, So I'm not really going to be good at predicting what the next trends of those are. If I was, I would probably patent them and make a ton of money off them instead. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's always hard to predict what the trends are going to be in gaming on those, but uh, I wouldn't be the guy for that because, to me, I still play games from, like, 2006, and I still remember fondly Nintendo games like, the early 90s, late 80s. So, Kenneth Landert says, are you involved in the search for the ninth planet? Which one would qualify as the ninth planet these days? I guess that would be a no. Uh, yeah, I, well... <laughs> I mean, if you have to stop and think about yeah. it. Um, it's always nice. There are going to be more planet-sized objects in the solar system, some of which are probably planets on the official international, unofficial international astronomical union's definition. I, I find the taxonomy of planets to be really kind of silly, to be honest. Um, 
Pluto's always been a plant to me because it's been my whole life. It's still a plant to me. I just think it was Ceres and Sedna and Orcus and Makamake and Huami and Aeris as plants too. However, only the ones that are interesting to actually to be promoted planet. People who live on these things down the road are going to call them plants too. They're not going to be like, oh, I live on the dwarf planet of Ceres. Like, I live on planet Ceres now. <laughs> You're dating yourself. Someone wants to know how old you are, but... Uh... 26. <laughs> And counting. This is an interesting name. It says, divide by zero, get cake. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, hey, Isaac, what space mission within the next 10 years excites you the most? Asteroid mining, to be honest. Uh, I'd love to go back to the moon, but I, I do think of asteroid mining as, as the big one. That would be what I'd really like to see. Uh, anything that puts boots on the ground on the moon would be nice. But really only if it's there with the intent of it being permanent. Right? Um, a moon base would excite me. But otherwise, asteroid mining is the big one for me. So, uh, going to take uh, one more question before we go to break, I think. Okay, this one is from Bionic Pun. Are you ever going to do a genocidal aliens episode? One that posits on, that the solution to the Fermi paradox is an evil race of alien murderers that thinks the universe belongs exclusively to them. Yes. See our Galactic Domination series this, this summer. <laughs> We're going to go to break real quick. We'll be back in a few minutes. It's a great time to grab a drink or snack and get some more questions in. So we're on break for a few minutes, and it's a good time to grab a drink and a snack and get some more questions into our moderators for part two. While we're taking a quick break, I want to follow up on a question that gets raised a lot in discussion of longer lifespans and post-scarcity or advanced civilizations, like those we've been discussing of late, and that's what happens when you start running out of room for memory. The interesting thing about it is that we would assume someone losing their memories would be losing some vital piece of themselves, but I'm not entirely sure that's true. We have discussed before the concept of identity as a continuity of memory and experience, but while we are definitely influenced by our experiences, how much the specific memory of them impacts us as a critical feature of personality is a little bit debatable. And that's important because when you use terms like identity or personality in the context of radical changes to lifespan, personal augmentation, or civilization changing events, they're not idle or semantic ponderings. We still consider someone themselves even if they have amnesia, and in point of fact there are four recognized types of amnesia, one of which is infantile or childhood amnesia, and most people cannot remember the first three to five years of life. There's a clue in there because while folks change a lot as they age, they ought to have a fairly developed personality by that age, which tends to remain there for life in spite of not remembering the events that caused it, and few of us really remember things in true detail, even something as recent and overt as what color tie someone was wearing who you spoke to face to face for 10 minutes last week. It's probably not right to say that we distill down conversations or events for critical info, but something along those lines seems to be the case and the analogy that comes to mind is a scientific experiment. If you've been involved in one of those, even a fairly brief one of a few hours, then you know that all that you need from it is often as little as a table of a few dozen measurements linked to times or trials or similar, like if you were measuring how tall a plant grew over several days from when you planted its seed. Think about everything that went on during that time in that lab, like you grabbing some coffee or chatting life events with your lab partner, or sweeping up some broken glass when you bumped a beaker off the table. None of that is really relevant to your data, and indeed that data isn't really relevant to some grand scientific theory developed from it. We don't really care about the several thousand stars whose spectrum, mass, and brightness will measure to determine how mass impacts star lifetimes, we just care about the conclusion, 
and that might be an analogy for most memories in our personality, losing those memories later doesn't change the personality any more than losing the tables of data for that seedling or those stars would. In the context of people needing a purpose for their existence in a high-tech utopia of extended lifespans, picking up some skills is what we think of, along with enjoying life events, and losing your memory of them to limited storage would seem to hurt that motive, but the personality changes they brought on are likely to be preserved. Another thing to consider is the same as we don't keep memories of our earliest childhood, a post-human or very long-lived individual might regard lifetime one, so to speak, as just another childhood compared to their vastly extended life. Of course extending and improving human memory will be a big goal of future biotechnology and brain-computer interfaces, topics we'll be looking at this spring. If you'd like to help future episodes of our show like those, you can donate to us on Patreon or at our website, IsaacArthur.net, linked in this episode's description. And now, back to our show. And we're back. Well, we have a lot of questions, so I'm going to jump right in with one from The Thatcher. When we talk about putting people's consciousness into a machine, I always hear about scanning and in essence copying the person and not actually transferring. Is it possible to slowly replace a person's brain bit by bit with tech that does the same tasks as the parts replaced so that the original person is in the computer at some point? Probably. I think on a lot of these ones, um, this comes back to Theseus's ship or Theseus's ship, I'm not sure the pronunciation on that is. If I have a ship and I, I'm replacing little bits of it here and there, at what point in time have I replaced the entire ship or is it still the original ship? If every component is not one that was originally there. Well, your body replaces components all the time. But the counter on that is is usually if I make synthetic neurons, and mind you, these might not be metal, they could just be cloned neuron copies with your own DNA, just like your own body makes, or restored ones that are perfect copies of these actual neuron. If you can do with these digital uploads, you can also repair that normal brain probably indefinitely too. Um, if your brain's replaced them anyway, and then you say, well, that probably is the original person. It's this gradual approach, though. Um, it seems to be other people are much more comfortable with is the gradual one, where it would be slowly replacing things or slowly copying you part way over to a computer that might be in your head, for instance, just like an implanted chip. And at some point, we pull the chip and all your brain's there. The counter of that is, if I could do that over a century and you're still the original person, what's interesting a century in a second? If, the, if that all we're doing is replacing these things, if you're still the same person when it's done. Uh, and that's the whole continuity of identity issue that we often discuss so often on this topic. So we don't know the answer. Thank you, Zatel, for your donation. And Zatel says, thank you for your out-of-this-world videos. Thank you. We have a question from Alexander. Hey, Isaac, how are you? Do you believe we'll find more big dwarf planets in our solar system, like Pluto, Eurus, or Humea? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, almost without a shadow of doubt. Um, there will be plenty of them in the outer I think that's going back to our discussion before the break about what's classified as a planet. Yeah, probably. Uh, whether or not we find something really big like a Saturn or Jupiter, and I'd say probably not anything that big, but anything Earth size or smaller, I'd say there's pretty snods of one in the outer or well, not the outer or cloud, probably is, but you know, just out in the, within 280 years of the system, probably. Gould Dukat says if JWST launches and images planets with life but no techno signatures, do you think this will unify humans or dishearten them? For we are likely very unique. I think that if we found a bunch of planets with, without technosignatures but with clear signs of life, I think that would probably just push us towards wanting to colonize the galaxy faster. Um, I don't think that it really 
change our perception of things. Um, you know, we we have basically two constant warring schools of thought. Are, are we special? Are we unique? And no, we're not special. No, we're not unique. And those are deep philosophical questions that we're kind of constantly always trying to answer both directions because if you go too far down the one road, that's pride and arrogance. Uh, if you go too far down the other road, you're kind of removing that collective will to thrive. So, um, yes, I think if we find a bunch of plants that are techno centrals, it would push us towards moving out in the galaxy. Thank you uh, for the new donations coming in on the super chat. We appreciate that. And we have a question here from Goofball Mon. Good afternoon, Isaac. I have a question. What would happen if the Fermi paradox was completely wrong and life, and in particular intelligent life, was way more common than we originally thought? Well, I mean, the issue with the Fermi paradox is, is that it's not really subject to being wrong that way. Um, we don't know where life is. It might be that there are little green aliens actually visiting us right now. That's a possible solution to the Fermi paradox is that the question is, why does it seem like there should be a lot of intelligent life, but there doesn't seem like there actually is. And hiding is definitely one of the viable solutions for that. I just don't think it's a very viable one. Um, and, uh, hmm. I don't know. I think if we found that life really was very common, intelligent life is really common, the biggest question is, is it temporary or is it hanging around? And if it, the most depressing answer to me in some ways would be that it actually hangs around space opera style because... All those civilizations seem really neat for a book or two, but then you start looking at them and they seem so stagnant. You know, if if, if the civilizations are getting wiped out nonstop, that's pretty depressing, right? Because it's like, well, we've hit the stage, we've gotten a few rocket ships launched, we've colonized the planet, and then we wiped ourselves out. That's pretty depressing if that's what happens in 99.99% of civilizations, because life is common but doesn't hang around. In some ways, though, it's just as depressing to me to think that life has been appearing on the scene with intelligence for a billion years on, on a million planets in this galaxy alone. And none of them have ever actually really gotten around to doing a thing um, in terms of, like, any of the stuff we usually think of for the federal fate of the galaxy. So I hope the answer is no. <laughs> okay, so we have a question here from Sam Daniel Jones. One thing about O'Neill-type habitats has long puzzled me. Could you simulate winter in one without resorting to mechanically produced oxygen, given how they're too small to have a summer side? Mm, for near cylinders, you could certainly have a summer and a winter in there. I, um, I'll give you an example. On a disk planet, one of the disk world coin planets we talk about, it has the same season over the whole thing because there's no culture of the planet. right? So every every part of the side facing the sun is getting the exact same amount of light of sun. You can tilt the thing anyway, right? But uh, And that just controls how much light the thing's individual surface areas are getting. But it's the same for the guidance up at the top as it is down at the bottom, right? Uh, with a core plant, you're changing the amount of light that's hitting. This surface here gets less than, you know, this surface here. Um, and uh, you could do that with an O'Neill habitat. It's spinning around, but you have to kind of cock it so that it gets different seasons if you're laying the light in down the middle. Um, but you can do weather patterns inside O'Neill cylinders. It's just that they all tend to be a little bit more artificial. You know, you're not going to have the tilting of the plant the same way because it's not a sphere. But if you're looking for what that might look like, Brian Vorstig uh, from Spacehabs.com did some really very nice Christmas shots for his Kaplana 1 um, habitat that had snow. So. Ninjat Q says, does the orbital ring have to meet the equator at two points, or is it possible to somehow stretch across one hemisphere exclusively? Um, 
you can do an awful lot with an orbital ring that is not exactly natural. The stablest place to have one is around the equator, not two points with the whole thing. But you can tilt an angle, make it elliptical, things like that. When you start trying to make it not cross the equator at two points, though, where it would not be a stable, circular, elliptical orbit around the planet, things start getting a lot trickier. But you've got to keep in mind, what's holding an orbital ring up is magnets. You can curve the motion of anything with a magnet. It does not have to be a naturally moving structure. So you could do some kind of weird curvy train track if you really wanted to. At that point, though, you'd probably be better off just putting a bunch of space towers and a very long track. And keep in mind, you also have to turn things while they're moving out of tracks. So you can't do any sharp turns. I think Flax would like to answer this question. The question is from Barry on. Would a theory of everything include cats? It's, <laughs> I think the cat's buried underneath the camera shot. There. Oh, it's just is flying. he in it? How do you sneak back in here? It's not my little mountain lee. Well, he decided that treats made a great start <laughs> for a nap. Is he in the camera? Well, I just took out the camera, so oh, okay. yes, yeah. I think he wants to answer that question. What was the question again? <laughs> would the theory of everything include cats? Well, it would have to if it's everything. Uh, and since cats do tend to think of themselves as the center of the universe, I should think that um, <laughs> he, <he's laughs> he probably would He's definitely be paying attention to that. He just peeked his eye out. Oh, it's because, yeah, the cat door. So, uh, there was a cat door in my office. I've been trying to decide that was a really stupid idea for a year now, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even see him stink back in. <laughs> Definitely feels that he's the center of the universe. Yeah. Well, he's a cat. <laughs> SP Roach says, how hard would it be to put a giant parasol into the Earth Soul L1? I mean, for a given value of easy, uh, it's probably easier to put a big one, almost one that would actually be to shade the entire planet, than to build one full-sized Donio Sondor. Because you're talking about basically putting a thin layer of aluminum foil up, I assume. Um, so probably probably you could do it uh, pretty easily. Think of it as something on Paul, depending on how much you want to do with building the first decent-sized space habitat. <laughs> I see someone says cats cha shaped our minds. <laughs> well, apparently they have brain parasites put in your head, too. Uh <laughs> okay, Melancholy says, could there ever be a fear of Kessler syndrome with Dyson swarms on the upper limit in terms of what the star can support quite probably um i think your biggest concern with dyson swarms in terms of kessler syndrome would ironically be one way it was mostly uh mostly a power collector the thin thin ones like the chicago thrust around than one that was mostly habitats although you got a lot more mass to play with so you can put a lot more defensive things in place a lot more things like armor but uh I think for the power collector ones, that would be a big concern, would be uh, Kessler syndrome around those, uh, which is a cloud of debris around the solar system in this case. Sonobel, what is the future of non-lethal weaponry? Should we expect something like Asimov's neuronic, excuse me, neuronic whip to be invented? Uh, for those who don't know, in the Foundation series, a neuronic whip is a weapon, uh, actually it's more just a Foundation series, as we used a few times, but it's a weapon that basically causes, you know, maximum pain to someone when you shoot with them, and it's very much like the equivalent of tear gas in that thing. Or uh, uh, We have some weapons like that, though, sound weapons. I think we were talking about them in an episode that probably hasn't come out yet. What would be coming up that would have that episode? And we were definitely talking about non-lethal weapons, though, and, and, and sound as one of those, one of those. Um, but something could actually stimulate your neurons like that? Probably. Um, you should be able to actually do that without having invasive devices, too, because you can 
wirelessly stimulate a brain, same as you can wirelessly read one, so perhaps, yeah. That'd be horrible. <laughs> Charlotte Emma, will governments continue to lead space exploration, or is the future corporate now that SpaceX has led the way? Um... I'd say both. Uh, governments are almost always going to be your best way to actually, like, if people have an enthusiastic mode for it, you know, that, that they can just say we want to do a big project that maybe is not going to be economically viable initially or for the long term. That tends to be where government stuff tends to be very handy. Also stuff where you need to do stuff that maybe not everyone's willing to agree on. Uh, we were talking bike trails earlier. That's hard to do privately because there's so much right of way stuff there. You almost have to have a government entity doing some eminent domain here and there to be able to put something like that together. Um, so as to whether or not we have more corporate stuff in it, that would be, I would hope so. Um, I don't think there's really a scenario for there being less government involvement in space as uh, so much as there's a good chance for a lot of private development and hopefully for a lot of, uh, you know, nonprofit and individual stuff too. Our goal, our ideal goal for the geeks uh, that we all, uh, is to be able to have the Millennium Falcon, to be able to have that personal spaceship that you can rent out and take to another planet. So... That's the end goal. You know, so. Forget about renting out. They want to own it. You want to buy one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Drod says, would you like to do a collaboration with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I, I mean, he's obviously a great educator, great science communicator. I always enjoy working with obviously from that area, but I don't know him personally, so... Um, usually, if someone asks me to do a collaboration with them, I say yes. You know, it's... it's uh, one of those things where I don't really go out and solicit. If they ask me, then I'm usually glad to do so. Daddle Noddle, if a star was warped someplace close to us, will we detect its gravity of that star, or will we see its light first? Gravity and light move at the same speed to the best of our knowledge. They both move at the speed of light or speed of information. That's something we'll talk about more in the FTL series when we get to that first episode, which I think was called Breaking Reality or something like that. <laughs> cheating, cheating Reality, and that's coming up in about two months. Yeah, I think it was... Uh... No, it wouldn't be on the monthly schedule yet, I don't think Okay. So. Ramak, how long will I need to live to get to live indefinitely? Uh, longevity. Uh, we have to call this takeoff speed. Um, if you're making people live a little longer every year, at what point in time are you far enough ahead in time that you could expect that we'll, we'll start improving lifespan faster than people are aging out? I think you're probably, if you're in your 20s or younger, you're probably already there. I wouldn't care to speculate about everybody who is older than that. So, but probably getting to that point. It's technology that is, to me, something we will get in the 24th century or we'll have very close. So. Rodney says, do you think DeepMind's protein-folding AI could be the answer to the Fermi paradox, a technology we can resist that kills us? Um, I... Ask me in the comments afterwards. I'll get back to that question. I would want to think on that a little bit more. I'm not sure if I understood it correctly. So. Okay, Sam Daniel Jones says, Do you think intelligent super objects like Jupiter brains will be necessary for us to nail down complex technology or physics, or will they merely speed things up? Speed things up. Um, I would say with all those things, if we're talking about just being a faster computer, uh, those always help us figure things out. But if we actually talk about a Jupiter brain, which you seem not so much to be a computer as a... a brain then you're not really us in that case anymore it's that thing which is doing it and i don't think it's going to like to be a tool <laughs> thank you merv johnson for your super chat and your donation and merv's question today is how goes your quest to conquer the world as an evil ai via donations 
Um, I would say that it's impressive how much, I mean, as you can see today, we have just got so much better at that, that emulation technology. I really feel like a, a real boy now and, and not just like a puppet. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Annabelle Casas says, could you talk about what life would be like in a type 3 civilization? I don't know if you'd ever really have a type 3 civilization without fast and light travel. Uh, that is, again, one of those things we talk about in a little bit in the upcoming Galactic Domination series. But, uh, I mean, we never want to assume that a, a type 3 civilization is any type of specific civilization. We, we, we talk about the culture of scale. We really want to talk about the amount of power they have access to. And that means they have access to something in the vicinity of a billion or two a trillion suns worth of power. You know, they're, they're that much of a Dyson sphere on crack. And uh, I generally don't think that it's going to be a, you know, a unified civilization. I honestly wouldn't expect even the case of K2 civilizations because, you know, we're, we're not even K1 yet. And we've never been unified, nor do I really expect us to be. So it could be any number of them. Halo Pitter says, if you could make decisions for space exploration for the next 30 years... What missions and technology advancements would you recommend? 30 years is a long time. I mean, they're being really generous with that. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what was going on 30 years ago. Um, we were still in the middle of the shuttle program. Uh, we're kind of recovering from Challenger still. Um, there really had been almost no talk of really going back to the moon. I was really upset about how we weren't getting any progress on the moon. Um, it's impressed with you about how much has changed since then it's it's, it's very different but at the same time it's a lot of the stuff is still very much the same um, what would I do in the next 30 years there would be four things I would I would really want to really have on the radar that were they all done or, or you know mission really built up and made large at any point not theoretical and, and Mars is not on that list of four the first would be getting us back to the opponent base the second would be getting us a space station. And these don't have to be in order, by the way. Getting us a space station that could actually have 100 people on it at a time, and usually did, probably with at least one rotating section that emulated either Moon or Mars gravity. Uh, the third would be some kind of actual economic setup there, even if it was prototyping stuff. It was like prototype space farms, prototype power satellites, whatever it is. Things slowly improving to be able to get those to the point of being economical. You know? Trying out those programs, new metallurgy projects, for instance, that were being done in microgravity, but probably with a big focus on power satellites, for instance. And then that fourth one would be asteroid mining, both for terms of precious metals back home and for actually extracting construction materials to be used in building up there. Okay, we have a question from Atsunarvanian. Sorry if I mispronounced that one. Uh, when do you think we could reasonably build an orbitable ring? As in, if we didn't focus solely on it and developed and expanded otherwise, too. Um, you know, this is one of those ones of technology versus practical usage. We could build one now, but we wouldn't. Right? Um, same as they could have built a railroad uh, in 1760. Right? They didn't have any reason to build them yet then. They could have done it in 1600. Right? Um, you build an orbital ring when you have a demand for it. Because there is prototyping that has been done with that. Right? It's not... The basic technology is run some particle that's subject to magnetic fields uh, through a big, long magnetic tube. Very easy technology. It's how your old televisions worked. It's how a bunch of appliances worked. It's how a vacuum tube works. We have that technology. We need to do that, then scale it up a billion forward in terms of particles going through it. And we need to get all that stuff so we can do it up in space as one big, long, continuous section. Um, 
to do that, to go through all the prototyping and making it economical, you have to have a demand for it. And until we're ready to start putting 1,000 to 10,000 people into space every single day, you just don't do it. And that's so you have to, it's, it's got to follow in. That's why I always say the orbital ring is like a train. You don't build a train out to colonize the West Coast. You send the folks in the covered wagons out on the Oregon Trail. Um, then when there are big cities there, that's when you build the train track there. And the same for the orbital ring. You build that there when there's a lot of folks there. I think this question kind of ties in quite a bit to that conversation and the one on Tech 3 uh, type civilizations. Hiroshi, uh, thank you for your super chat and your donation. And he says, can there be a low let, a low tech type 3 civilization? Sure. You could have a no tech uh, Kardashev 3 civilization. Uh, we were looking at low tech Kardashev 2 civilizations. Um, we've looked at biotechnology, space whales, things like that. Yeah, you could have a zero tech um, Kardashev 3. Let's say that we have a, a basic panspermia device, some creature that's able to survive a 10,000-year journey through space, very simple microbe, and it's capable of uh, creating a life cycle that is, I absorb sunlight, I eat asteroids, I create some kind of thin foil membrane thing that absorbs sunlight and eats asteroids, and we turn a whole solar system into one big power collector, and that is how we also spread our spores out to other solar systems. That is a no-tech Kardashev 3 civilization. All that matters to be a culture of three civilization from this perspective is, are you using a large portion or the entirety of the power output of the stars in a galaxy? And that could be done very low tech. We have a uh, super chat from Dimez Rikan before. Thank you, Dimez. And he says, I'm late, but I love the streams. If we do find life or evidence of life on Mars, what are the odds that it's related to life here? such as panspermia hmm. pretty big to be honest um the, well let me rephrase that when we start looking at other planets and seeing if there's actually life on all these other planets if there are tons of plants without techno signatures um I'd, obviously you still want to go actually visit those places and start writing dna on them if we did find that but you can transfer material between earth and mars and i would say that there'd be a pretty good chance we found something on Mars that it was transplanted from Earth or, or vice versa, or maybe from Europa. Um, that just depends on where it is that your abiogenesis events take place at. Um, we were just talking about that no-tech scenario. One of them was that maybe, you know, about a billion years in the universe's age, some very simple life was cooked up and sprayed all over the entire galaxy. So common origin there, perhaps. But we just don't know. We need a lot more science, and we need actual boots on the ground and all these places to really be able to say that with any sort of salty at all. Daniel Michalik says, Hey Isaac, have you heard about something called moist greenhouse? From what I understand, it is similar to a runway greenhouse, runaway greenhouse effect, like with Venus, but the oceans simmer instead of boiling. Uh, I tend to be very dubious of some of the atmospheric models that, that would imply that you could boil a planet at Earth's distance without extreme artificial intent to do so. Um, it's possible, maybe, but I, I really don't think you could have a runaway effect like with Venus, because I don't think that Venus was a runaway greenhouse effect. I think that uh, we don't have enough information to say why Venus is super hot like that, but the biggest key thing, of course, with Venus is that it rotates once a year, pretty much, and that it is actually a lot closer to the sun than we are. 
Um, you could have a lot of effects from screwing out the atmosphere of a planet, but we also want to be a little bit careful in assuming that those can peak off to cause a planet to be like Mercury or Venus when it's out as far as Earth is. I'm not familiar specifically with the moist greenhouse effect, but I don't think you'd bore the oceans off this planet without actually applying something along the line of a non-stop nuclear detonations across the planet or lots of solar meals. I'm going to combine a couple questions here from Arkanoid and Von Neely. So basically the first part is, what kind of civilization would you go for when playing Stellaris? Wide, tall, Federation, conquest, what ascension path would you take? And then the flip side of that is, what are the most strategic planetary bodies from a military's perspective? Um, you know, in terms of any of the 4X space games, whether you're talking Solaris or, uh, you know, I tend to date back to the old Master Orion and Mu 2 days and uh, Galactic Empires days, Gold Galactic Civilizations days, or Star Wars Rebellion, for those who go really far back for that one too. I never played the same strategy twice as you actually engineer a race. I'd always shift it around. I, you know, I'd always go custom. Um, usually I played with the basic default human race was or had a story, one of the ones that had the following storyline. And when it was done, I just changed it out each time to see what the difference was. Um, and then ask what plants are what plant types are most militarily strategic. Um, hmm. Plants, as a rule, are not going to be your best places to be doing military build-ups from. That's where you build your stuff, maybe, or where you're funneling things around, or what you're trying to protect, but. They do have the downside that they are not mobile, um, except in a very extreme case where you're moving them very slowly like planet ships. But as to which ones are most strategic, wherever there is value, there is something people might want to take or damage to deny access to you. Therefore, the most strategic plants are the most valuable plants, which is always going to vary based on where's your population or what's your technology. Best answer I can give on that one for now. Ask me again in a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this one reminds me of a game as well. That's from Three Black, One Red. This reminds me of that uh, game that we've been playing with the code and decode. Oh, uh, Mastermind. Yes, yeah. Mastermind. Um, anyway, thank you, Three Black, One Red, Mastermind, for your donation. And they'd like to know, can cryptocurrencies overcome its energy usage problem? And thoughts on the long-term viability? <laughs> I know you have a couple episodes on cryptocurrency. Just, yeah, just the one I think I did on that one from way back. Um, and thank you for the folks who donated cryptocurrency to the channel at that time. Oh, so, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but Charles Strauss, uh, a lot of, of episodes like uh, Singularity Sky and uh, a few, sorry, well, Charles Strauss uh, from Accelerando and a bunch of other sci-fi books wrote a very interesting article on cryptocurrency way back. It's a little dated, but that's a good one to discuss that, that energy issue thing. Um, I don't know if any individual specific cryptocurrency system, one specific one could do, but remember, you're allowed to create as many cryptocurrency types as you want. You don't have to limit yourself just to Bitcoin or Ethereum. You can make many of them, and you can tie those together under one blanket title. Um, as to the energy mining issue on that one, the biggest concern on that one is always how much uh, energy is worth that amount of money, e.g. are you basically spending tons of energy on it? And I think a thing to keep in mind with that, because it really is a big concern, at what point does it get to be too ridiculous in terms of the energy usage, uh, is how much we cost to print money these days, because frequently it costs more to make a penny than, it, than a penny costs. Right? A dollar bill costs was it, four cents to print, and they last for a year and a half. 
there's a big cost of actual money uh, in terms of printing or in terms of usage in general. And so the question is always going to be for economic viability of that. We won't know until we've been using it as a major currency for quite some time. But my guess is that, yes, it is something you can tackle. I know we're running out of time, but I want to slide in a few more questions here under the wire. Uh, Joseph Jostar says, Hello, Isaac. What do you think about the warp drive as an answer to faster-than-light travel? Anton Petrov recently made a good video about the topic. Have mm-hmm. you seen that? He's made a lot of good videos. Um, and uh, I have not seen that one, though. We will look more at the warp drive, I think, later this year. So we did do an episode on the Alcubia warp drive years back. It's time to look at the topic more, but I'll save commentary on that for now. For a later episode. And then I guess, do we have other questions? Um, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Rob Bose for his... Uh, super chat, three black, one red for another super chat, and Henry Myers for their super chat. And I have uh, three questions left if we have time for that. Okay. Uh, Also a super chat from mostly folders, a little bit of everything. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much for your donation. Finding some cash in those folders. (laughs) Can our advancement over the next century happen without people suffering being left behind? A rising tide to lift all boats or not? I think when the tide rises, if your boat doesn't have giant holes in it, you're generally going to rise up. Um, whether or not you can raise a standard of living for everybody, which should be the goal, is to raise a standard of living, depends on basically, one, is the ethics of the culture focused on doing that? Do you want to raise people up? And the other one is, what is your basis for doing that, e.g., how are you raising them up? If your answer is just to give them money, that may not be the best approach in some cases. You're trying to raise things up. You look at, I, I hate to focus on Maslow's hierarchy so much when we talk about post-scarcity because there's so much debate about the accuracy of that thing, but it's a good one in that's popular. People have a lot of needs, a lot of goals and aspirations, and we should never be focused on just trying to fulfill one of those. You want to make people better, and that is not just about prosperity, but it will come. You know, you want to raise prosperity up, but I never think of raising us to be a more prosperous society as the actual goal, but really more of a consequence of other goals of making us better, more thoughtful type of people. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to combine a couple here. How long until the Earth's core goes cold, and which is easier, terraforming or gene editing to adapt to a new planet? Uh, terraforming because gene editing is going to really be limited to where you find things that are very like Earth. You're not going to gene edit a human to be able to live on the moon uh, naturally. Um, uh, and then what was the other? How long for a quarter cool off? A uh, very long time. Um, I mean, check out, you'd have to look up what the actual wattage coming off the Earth's core is right now, but I think it's around 10 to 14th watts plus or minus order of magnitude there. Um, then just remember that's basically the binding energy plant, which is about 10 to 30. So, Probably something like 10 to 16 seconds, give or take two orders of magnitude. Uh, and there's like several billion years, probably several billion years, which sounds about right anyway, but someone had to run those numbers. I can't quite do those ones in my head. Last <laughs> probably question. not for the summer bonus out. Last question for today from uh, www. Thank you for your super chat of, t- of $10. And he says, if space is expanding faster than the speed of light, does that fact make it infinite by default? No, no. Uh, it would mean it was infinite over an infinite period of time, but uh, it, it, we would not necessarily know that it was infinite now. It might be infinite right now, but a finite thing that is expanding infinitely longly still needs an infinite amount of time to do so. So 
uh, in terms of that, it would get there eventually after an infinite period of time took place. So A great trick question to <laughs> end on. Yes. I did want to give a quick shout-out, because I've had some of the ones feeding up here for the, the Super Chats I think we didn't get a chance to get to. And there was one from Horace the Great that's been sticking there on my screen forever. It says, is Komarag from Warhammer 40K possible, or is science fantasy on steroids? And yes, that is definitely science fantasy on steroids, like a pocket dimension full of evil monsters. So, <laughs> Warhammer 40K is a great series. It should never be taken as scientifically realistic in any respect. <laughs> Um, as everyone else, I'm sorry if we missed your question going through these today. Hopefully we get to some more. Um, feel free to put them down in the uh, comments below. Do make sure you put them down in there if you want me to end a day or two because the ones that are in the chat, once we shut the video off for the day, you can't reply to any ones in the chat after that. So you do need to copy them down in the comments below and I will try to get them in the next couple of days. Though today is my anniversary and tomorrow I'm closing our house so there may be a bit of a delay. Anyway, thank you everyone so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for being our question answer and ask for today. Thank you, Sindri, and some of the others who were helping to get the questions to us from chat. And thanks to all of you for another great year with SFIA and so many great questions. On happy that note, anniversary, husband. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, happy anniversary, wife, and thank you for joining us today. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.